Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, April, not April, Tuesday, August the 2nd. And the, the wheels of the American entrepreneurial economy continue to run. Today's headlines seem to be all about Uber. Uh, the ride-sharing platform reported another big loss, but beat revenue and shares are up 20% in the casino of American capitalism. Uh, even though they lost $2.6 billion in the last quarter, they beat revenue expectations. I'm not sure what that says about innovation, but certainly it's quite striking. Uh, Uber has attracted the record number of drivers as the cost of living bites in our precariat economy. Uh, there are fewer and fewer jobs, more and more people driving Uber cars. One wonders whether they're that is a real job and what the real value to the economy is. But anyway, uh, according to one uh, columnist today, Uber embodies the post-COVID inflationary economy, whatever that means. It's certainly Uber has become the, the poster child of both the promise and the excesses of Silicon Valley innovation, Silicon Valley startups. Travis Kalalnik, who I used to know back in the 90s as a as a much-failed entrepreneur, now he's a much successful entrepreneur, a multi-billionaire, certainly become, again, the stand-up guy for the excesses of American innovation and capitalism. And I was kind of intrigued, I have to admit, that in um, a book I've just been reading, Launchpad Republic, America's Entrepreneurial Edge and Why It Matters, the book begins with uh, my old friend Travis Kalalnik, uh, and Uber, suggesting that Uber might indeed be a model, a proof of why America's entrepreneurial edge still exists and why it matters. The co-author of Launchpad Republic, a very interesting, controversial book, is my guest today, Howard Walk. He's talking to me from Medford, Massachusetts, just up the street from uh, Harvard University and MIT, the heart of American uh, innovation economics. Howard, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Controversial book, Howard, and I always like controversial books and controversial writers. It's anything but woke, uh, even though your name, Walk, is rather wokish. Um, why did you uh, why did you throw Travis and Uber right at the beginning of the book as the model? I am assuming um, you 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 believe that that might. Um, create a little bit of controversy. Yeah, uh, you know, the book is about entrepreneurship and it really talks about the rebellious nature of entrepreneurship and the rebellious spirit of entrepreneurship, uh, which is something that I think is at the essence of American entrepreneurship and is something that uh, we often take for granted. And uh, why I like the Uber story is Travis was all about pushing back and, and, and innovating and fighting a lot of vested interests which I think is an important part of what makes uh, America tick, including not just fighting competitors, but really fighting some of the government uh, red tape and some of the government inertia that might make it difficult for uh, entrepreneurs to succeed. And he keeps fighting through. So I, I, I felt that the Uber story might not be the most likable character uh, in the history of American capitalism, but I respected 
the, the innovation, the drive, the willingness, the pugnaciousness that uh, allowed him to, to succeed despite a lot of vested opposition. So that's why I put it right at the front. Yeah, and I think the choice of your word pugnacious is right for Travis. I remember when I used to chat with him um, in uh, the 1990s, in the late 90s, he used to boast to me of how many how many losses he'd experienced and how how many billions of dollars he was being sued with in court. I mean, he was a much more likable character, I guess, then than now when he's more successful. It's probably true of a lot of people. On the other hand, Howard, I don't want to make this just about Uber, but you know, Uber is 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 anything but angelic. There was a, a recent uh, journalist um, revelation in in the Washington Post, the so-called Uber Papers, showing that uh, a lot of European politicians were in the pockets of of Uber, including Neely Christ, and even uh, the French uh, President uh, Emmanuel Macron, as it happened, was on my show a few years ago talking about French innovation, if that's not a contradiction in terms. In your view, and I don't, as I said, I don't want to make this just a conversation about Uber, but there are limits, aren't there, to... Uh, an entrepreneurial edge. There is a, a moral code in terms of what you can and can't do. Isn't that fair, Howard? Sure, sure. A- absolutely. There are definitely excesses that are a result of the American system. And there's definitely a moral code. And I also think it's important for the system uh, that uh, bad behavior gets self-policed uh, in some way, shape or form, uh, or policed by a third party if need be. But um, I do think the, the example of Europe is a very good one. And I do talk about that at the beginning because um, as, as uh, difficult as it might have been for uh, Travis and Uber to break through in the United States, the institutional resistance in Europe uh, for all companies is much higher than it is in the United States. And the outlets for companies like Uber to innovate and break through vested interests are more difficult. And France, France is, the, is the poster child for a fully developed economy with a lot of great resources and assets that can't get out of its own way in terms of allowing innovation to puncture the glass ceiling, if you will, that often holds startups back. Uh, and we don't have that as, to the same degree in the United States. And that's sort of the premise of the book in many respects, not just about Uber, but about entrepreneurship in America compared with other parts of the world generally. If there was a traditional cab driver who was on the show or watching, they might say, well, Uber is also against innovation. They're standing against the right of taxi drivers to buy a medallion, whether it's New York or Boston or San Francisco. So there's always complexity to innovation. One person's innovation is another person's injustice. Is that fair, Howard? Sure, it it absolutely is. And the small business person is, is front and center in that because, you know, the small business person is kind of the classic entrepreneur in American history. And uh, we all want to give them the benefit of um, the doubt and the benefit of opportunity. But in many cases, it's actually small businesses that are resistant to innovation. And uh, that poses some challenge uh, politically uh, and morally. But ultimately, we do do a very good job in the United States in allowing innovation, whether it's a small company taking on a big company or a, or an innovator taking on, in fact, a small company. We seem to allow that to find the light of day in ways that aren't 
so easy in other in other in other countries. And the taxi cab is a perfect one. It, it's taken a long time for Uber to work through in England. It had a lot of resistance through Europe. Uh, other competitors have come in and tried to do that. There's certainly dislocation and disruption, but I think the consumer ultimately benefits as a result of Uber pushing forward. Howard, your book, it's a short book, it's really more of a polemical essay than anything, suggests that America's entrepreneurial edge or its spirit, its rebelliousness, its innovation, this is the thing that defines American history. It's a rather old-fashioned idea, perhaps today rather politically incorrect. But is that the heart of Launchpad Republic? Yeah, I I think it is. I think um, the, the entrepreneurial spirit is obviously an important uh, miles uh, foundation in American history, and I don't think anybody would dispute that. What pushed us to write the book was that there was a general sense that it, it was getting out of hand, and that solutions that were coming in to try to to try to ameliorate the excesses could potentially undercut the the very thing that made American entrepreneurship so successful. It is this pugnaciousness. It is this ability to challenge uh, that is so prevalent in American uh, economic life that needs to be better appreciated. You know, most people understand the entrepreneur, the importance of the entrepreneur. Most people understand the importance of innovation. Fine, everybody around the world actually starts to, is starting to see that. What people don't realize is the ability of a startup to take on an incumbent is a much harder thing uh, to do. And many other countries really don't make that very easy. And it's the essence of how entre- uh, innovation really happens. And so I, we were feeling that uh, increased concerns about big tech, while uh, having some merit for sure, could get out of hand when people start to clip the ability of innovators to continue to uh, innovate, because that that will cause a dampening of some of the spirit that's been uh, at the heart of what's made us successful. Howard, not everyone will disagree, will agree with you. Uh, I've done a couple of shows with prominent uh, professors of law, Ariel Ezrachi and Maurice Stake. Ezrachi is at Oxford University. They co-authored a new book, How Big, Tar- Big Tech Barons Smash Innovation. And Ezrachi was actually on the show earlier this week, or actually last week, suggesting that um, that the real engine for growth, whether it's America or overseas, should be cities rather than big tech companies, who in their argument are against innovation. What do you make, in particular, in the the tech business of a, of a winner-take-all economy where large players like Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple uh, seem to be, or at least in, in, in the arguments of people like Israchi and Stuckey, actually against innovation? Well, look, there's, there's no question that startups work hard to get into a market, grow, and achieve the pinnacle uh, in their area, and then work like heck to try to build up barriers to prevent other people from taking them down. That's a classic entrepreneurial and business life cycle that's been going on for as long as anybody's been able to track business activity. There's no question, big companies become incumbents and they try to protect themselves. What big tech is doing today is no different than what's been done for hundreds of years. And in fact, if you look at American history, the stories of U.S. Steel or A&P or Cornelius Vanderbilt, you can go back as long as you want to go back to British East India Company in, in the case of uh, England. These were big incumbents that worked hard to protect their interests. And yes, government can have a role in trying to clip their wings a bit. But at the end of the day, it's new technologies, it's new innovators, 
It's new market entrants that ultimately are the ones that discipline the big companies and potentially take them down. And in addition, uh, if you look at big companies, they have challenges as they get bigger. They become more bureaucratic. They have things that good companies, big companies can't do as they get bigger. And those lead to niches that small companies can come in, innovators can come in, fill and use it to uh, innovate in the classic Clay Christensen argument. So I, I understand fully why people would be concerned about big tech, why they would be clamoring for some government intervention. But I think at the end of the day, the general cycle of, of entrepreneurship will do more to discipline big companies and disrupt them than trying to have government micromanage that process. And that's kind of the heart of what we're trying to say, as opposed to others who would say big companies, big tech has to be actively uh, managed. Howard, you are um, a businessman. You began as a lawyer. You worked in the White House uh, in the Clinton administration. You're very well connected. You're not a professional writer. Why did you write this book? It's clearly not your day job. Is it just a passion? Were you bursting to say this? You know, I, I, I was. I mean, most of my day job has been as an entrepreneur either as the son of an entrepreneur and as an entrepreneur, and I've started several businesses. And in every one of them, it's been this upstart challenging incumbent, this rebellious uh, David and Goliath spirit that has been in the essence of building a company. It's a rallying cry. You take on big companies and you challenge them. My, my dad, who started one of our businesses that's now, uh, now our largest, started a motor club, very similar to AAA, and he began to compete with AAA by selling it through different niches, and in different pricing frameworks and in other sorts of innovations in ways that AAA couldn't. And over time, we built an entire industry that's now larger than AAA, but it's in a different segment of the roadside assistance and motor club market. And so we competed with big incumbents and I've seen the power of that. There's room for others and there's room for innovation. And now as we're a bigger company, we get challenged by, by upstarts and it's not easy. We have to work hard. We get better because of the competition. Upstarts trying to take us on, force us to become more digitally adept. So I saw that as a very good thing for business, and I saw that a very good thing culturally. Um, then when I've been in my other jobs, in the academic world at Harvard and in the White House in the policy context, I just felt that entrepreneurship and this David and Goliath struggle that makes, makes opportunity for small companies and makes big companies bigger was not truly understood. And it wasn't understood today. And if you looked at American history, you could really start to see that that dynamism was so critical to our success and so critical to our success going forward. There was a book written called Entrepreneurial Nation, uh, uh, sorry, Startup Nation about Israel as a startup nation. But you could, I guess, suggest that also that America is a startup nation. I did an interview yesterday with a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Turaj Parang, an AI guy who has a new book out, Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Game. Do you see the startup entrepreneurs of uh, MassAv, the, the people who have just come out of MIT or Harvard or Tufts or the people from Silicon Valley, are they the, the engine of the American experiment, not just the American economy, but the American spirit in your view, Howard? I think they are. And, and you, know, you mentioned Israel. And Startup Nation, that's a great book. And, and, and in that book, it talks a lot about how Israeli culture uh, encouraged people to challenge one another. And that was important. Now, Israel is different than, than the United States because it's a smaller market. And most of the innovation is exported and brought to other countries. So they have it easier in many ways. 
what I think is great about the United States is we can uh, uh, foster startups, foster ch companies that will challenge the status quo, and they're right within our own country, and they're challenging our own incumbents every day. Uh, and yes, I, you know, I spend a lot of time with uh, startup entrepreneurs and do some venture investing with MIT and Harvard and Tufts and other folks like that. And yeah, a lot of kids come out, a lot of energy, a lot of passion and a real sense of wide open opportunity. And, and, and there's a lot to be said for that. And many of them come in with a specific agenda to take down or challenge a big company. And that is a great rebellious spirit that I think is very important and something that we can't take for granted here. There's no doubt. I think anyone, even your greatest critic, Howard, would argue that there isn't an element of rebellion in being a startup entrepreneur. But we had a show um, a couple of weeks ago with Erica Sanchez, a, a Mexican-American uh, writer, crying in the bathroom, a memoir. And she argued that the essence of being American is being a risk taker, and particularly being the daughter of rebellious immigrants, she didn't mention entrepreneurship. She has no interest one way or the other, I think, in, in economics. I mean, one can be rebellious without being a, an entrepreneur. One can be American without being an entrepreneur. Is that fair? Sure, absolutely. But, but certainly people come here for a reason, and it usually relates to opportunity in a broader sense, uh, safety, security, and economic opportunity, and the rule of law and many other things that make this a great country for people who do have a restless spirit of any type, um, creative just as much as economic. Um, and this is a great country for creative people as well. And I think it's related to many of the same things, which, which are the rights we have, the rule of law we have, the openness that we have, despite you know, the fact that we do have very large companies and very powerful incumbents, there seems to be room for immigrants and others to come in and strut their stuff. Although Erica would probably say there isn't room. Uh, her parents were illegal immigrants. They came in the boot of a car. I mean, some people, Howard, are watching this and saying, how can Howard say this? Look at the history of American uh, slavery. Look at the, uh, the Holocaust against the Native Americans after the Europeans show up. What about the inequality, um, the continual racism in America? How would you respond to that kind of critique, which I'm sure, particularly in, in your area of uh, Boston and Massachusetts, you know as well as I do? Absolutely. Uh, there's, that's inescapable and inexcusable, and there's no question about it. It is a, a, a huge stain, multiple stains on the system. And I'm not saying that the system is perfect, and, I'm, and we do make reference to all these things in the book because we acknowledge them. There's no question about it. This is not a Nirvana story, and this is not one that's uh, completely Whiggish history. They say, you know, where everything looks great in hindsight. Um, it's 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 uh, a system that has its challenges. It has its excesses. It's messy, and it's certainly not uh, evenly distributed. Uh, there's far more that has to get done. And, and there's no question that we have to acknowledge it. Certainly, we're doing a better job um, in bringing more people into the system at the higher levels. Uh, we're getting better with, with uh, minorities, with women, with, with other groups, and we're uh, creating opportunities and dispersing them more broadly than we ever have. But there's no question we have a lot more to go and a lot of the past that has to be made up for. There's no doubt about it. And, the, and a lot of the great successes we've had, railroads, all the way from the very inception, you know, slavery for sure, 
have been built, built on the backs of, of people who have been massively disenfranchised. So I certainly can't be an apologist for that. I think it's really um, a, a, a huge stain. But I don't want to let the essence of the success, which has been this openness for challengers to come in and challenge incumbents, to be ignored, because that is special. The dynamism here in this country is unique. And that's, I guess, at the end of the day, what we're arguing, that, that we can't lose sight of the dynamism. Inequality needs to be addressed. Inequality is a problem. Climate change needs to be addressed. Climate change is a problem. Our past legacy it, it is a challenge, needs to be acknowledged and addressed. However, we can't lose sight of the dynamism uh, where upstarts can come in and challenge incumbents uh, as being so critical to why we've been successful. And it's something that's special. And too much intervention by the government, and I'm not a libertarian, but too much intervention by the government or intervention in the wrong way uh, has the risk of creating more cronyism and more stagnation and less opportunity uh, than, than otherwise. And that's kind of what we're pushing hard for is to recognize that it's the dynamism brought about by opportunity, entrepreneurship, uh, an abundance of venture capital that's really driving forward this change. I want to come to venture capital, but I want to talk now, uh, Howard, for a moment about politics. As I said, you worked in the Clinton White House. I'm assuming if there is a political agenda here, it's a centrist democratic one. Yeah. Um, so you would find critics to the right, libertarians and Republicans, but also critics to the left, um, the left of the Democratic Party. How would you position your self in political terms. Do you see the Clinton period, um, the, 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 the new politics of Clinton, Clintonism or Blairism in the UK? Is that your ideal model? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think Clinton was exactly the right model. And, um, you know, when you look, there's certainly a role for government. Government's done a great job when it's come to infrastructure. We need to do more with education. We've done some great work on research and development and, and spawning new industries. Um, that's probably an argument that's a little bit left of center, but it's one that I believe in. Where I tend to disagree with the Democrats are, are the ones on the far left that are pushing for more aggressive intervention in the economy, more regulation, more antitrust, more uh, inter activist type government, because I don't think that works. My challenge on the conservative side is I don't think it's a very big tent approach. I think much of the very conservative agenda tends to be uh, keeping the incumbents as incumbents and squashing uh, upstart challengers. So I do have a very center, uh, centrist type uh, framework, uh, as does my co-author. And I also feel like we can be more inclusive. We can help more groups. We can open up the system by building on our strengths, which is the entrepreneurial economy and, and the opportunity that it allows uh, for progress and dynamism. And that's probably the best path forward. And I will say, having worked in government, I've seen very, very well-intentioned government uh, officials, bureaucrats and officials who want to do the right thing. But the system is so difficult with the, the competing politics and the um, other challenges structurally uh, that it just made me feel that we're doing so many great things entrepreneurially. We can solve so many problems entrepreneurially that uh, a heavy government uh, role could be kind of productive to even the most progressive goals. We could, Howard, be on the brink of a really interesting debate, struggle within the Democratic Party if Biden decides not to run again. 
certainly be, be, be between the left and the right wing of the Democratic Party, perhaps Newsom against Harris, or perhaps there'll be people further to the left of Harris. It occurs to me as, as, as we're talking that um, your ideal of Americanness as being about entrepreneurship and innovation, there's an interesting political opportunity, given how the Republicans seem to have given up on that idea. When you listen to Donald Trump, for example, he rarely says anything about America's entrepreneurial edge or why it matters. He focuses on race, on anger, on resentment. Do you think uh, this offers in political terms? Is there a, a, a vacuum for progressive, pro-business Democrats like yourself and their message to play a more central role in politics in America? I would hope so, because, you know, America is so massively divided, it's really a concern. Uh, yet entrepreneurship still is something that most parties, mo most people agree on in terms of being an important value. Uh, some people like it for different reasons. I think conservatives tend to like it because it, it validates rule of law and property rights and sort of this capitalist system. And I think progressives like it because it's more of a David and Goliath disruptor uh, uh, sort of scenario. But I do believe that that entrepreneurship is something we can rally around, and we've seen how uh, powerful that can be. Uh, and uh, I, I think there's certainly opportunities for centrist parties. Maybe, uh, maybe Howard uh, Travis Kalanick should run for president. What would you think of that? <laughs> well, look, I thought Michael Bloomberg was a classic uh, example of somebody who can relate to both sides. He. he he, he obviously wasn't that effective as a presidential candidate, but he was classically an entrepreneur and a successful one and one who went from upstart to major incumbent, very powerful firm. So, and certainly he got a lot of support amongst the entrepreneurial class. Uh, and I think there probably will be somebody, either a centrist Democrat or a very liberal Republican. Here in Massachusetts, we had um, uh, Charlie Baker, who's been very popular and he is sort of an entrepreneurial type so there are liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats that I think rally around these principles. Um, I just don't know whether they're going to gain traction more broadly uh, in this polarized environment. Seems to me, Howard, maybe you agree or disagree with this, that the two most problematic areas in American economy and indeed society are healthcare and the environment. Uh, we did a, a show with David Victor, who teaches at UC San Diego yesterday. He's the co-author of Fixing the Climate Stretches for an Uncertain World. He's pretty much in your camp. He believes that American entrepreneurs and American innovation can begin to at least confront our environmental crisis. So you in, I'm assuming you're in yeah. the Victor camp. I know you write a little bit about the environment. Um, in your book, do you think that this is a, a, a critical battle? Yes, it, absolutely. Look, look, look at Elon Musk. He is the classic. If we, if we, if I weren't, if I didn't lead off with uh, Uber, I'd want to lead off with Elon Musk in terms of his his pugnaciousness, his challenging approach, his willing to push the envelope. But he did more for the the automotive industry than thirty years of environmental regulation about mileage. And you needed an, outs an outsider, an innovator to come in and make those changes. Not, you know, wasn't, wasn't without some messiness, not without some challenges. But I think innovators like that 
will go a long way and much further than many government regulations will in terms of creating the kinds of things uh, that will change the world in terms of climate. I also think that we have a major consumer movement here, which is going to continue to back those companies that are addressing climate front and center. Certainly there's some greenwashing and some companies that are getting on the bandwagon and aren't really, don't really have the heart in the right place. But a platform change like we're seeing, which is putting climate responsible businesses at the forefront is a major opportunity for innovators and entrepreneurs. And I think they will drive that. Yeah, um, we had uh, Bob Keefe on the show. Um, he works with a lot of uh, for-profit environmental groups. He has a new book out, Climate Nomics. Washington, Wall Street, and the economic battle to save our planet. He's in your camp as well. What we haven't discussed, Travis, which is the 2 million person or 2 billion person, or having many billions of people live there, the 2 billion person gorilla in the room is China. China as both America's principal competitor and also offering an alternative model. What do you make of the China card, the China problem, the China issue. Nancy Pelosi supposedly is still intent on going to Taiwan later this week, which will perhaps trigger a major political crisis. Is China America's not just its main enemy and competitor, but also the model that America needs to essentially reinvent itself against? Well, you know, Ch China and authoritarian capitalism is the big uh, boogeyman out there. And it, it, it gets some attention and people think, well, is China, do they have a better way? Uh, is a managed economy uh, or, or a managed entrepreneurial economy possible? And how do you um, have entrepreneurship coexist with um, very limited uh, individual rights and individual liberties, particularly around things like speech? Um, and I look at it and say, if you look at, if you look at American history, over time, it's, it's our ability to allow uh, innovators to get to the market and challenge incumbents that's been so critical. And I wonder how that's going to happen in, in, in a Chinese uh, authoritarian capitalist model. So sure, they're entrepreneurial now. I was involved in what's the starting up of what's now the largest rental car company in China. And the entrepreneur I work with used to drive around Beijing with a siren and a, and a light because he was very closely tied to the Communist Party. And he created a very big business and he's a billionaire. He's a classic Chinese uh, entrepreneur who's been very successful. However, fast forward 20 or 30 years, how is that going to sustain itself? Are there going to be challengers that come in that, will, that won't be tied to the Communist Party, that will be able to challenge incumbency, come up with new innovations that will disrupt the status quo? I don't know. So I, I believe that either that will lead to some stagnation in China if they don't uh, figure out a way to allow upstarts to come in and challenge these vested interests. Or there's the other side, which says in an economy that has a lot of entrepreneurs and more middle class and, and, and a different group of people, will it change China itself politically? So that's the question to my mind is whether it can continue to be successful economically without enabling more creative destruction or if it, it will the development of an entrepreneurial economy morph the politics in China somehow to open it up uh, as those uh, entrepreneurs uh, continue to be successful. You know. And in the war between, the economic war at least, between China and America, I think one of the, the key fronts will be um, the environment and innovation in, in terms of uh, climate and, and, yeah. and technologies which confront global warming. 
Let's end with healthcare, Howard. You argue America is uh, an innovator, is, 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 a, is a launchpad republic defined by its innovation, its willingness to take risk, to take on the establishment. Why has it failed so dramatically in terms of healthcare? Why is healthcare seemingly such an unsolvable problem? Uh, and, and how are we going to fix that one? How are entrepreneurs going to fix that one? You know, I, you know, I spend a lot of time actually uh, in, in one of our businesses in the auto insurance industry, which is a very competitive market, and it has a number of uh, excellent competitors and players and a lot of innovation. And uh, there's, they're, always, they're always working to try to one-up one another. There's price competitiveness. There's, there's technology competitiveness. There's a, uh, people are constantly trying to get a better deal on their auto insurance. Healthcare market is entirely different. It's so deeply regulated. It's employer paid. Consumers have very little uh, individual uh, accountability, responsibility, authority. It's, it's very, very difficult. I believe ultimately the reform uh, in healthcare is going to come by, out, by outsiders to the industry. You know, when you look at the minute clinics that are opening up and other models that are being developed outside the four corners of healthcare, I suspect that's where the innovation is going to happen. And it may not happen uh, equally at first. There may be, uh, you know, Cadillac programs for wealthy people who don't really want to be in the system, or there might be some mass marketing programs that are very cost effective that don't cover everything. But I think ultimately uh, it's, it, it's going to be entrepreneurs that are going to be able to crack through the morass, uh, probably working outside the system because the system itself is so complicated. Every entrepreneur I know who uh, goes into healthcare and I don't have, a, I don't, I don't do a lot of this uh, in my day job, but it, it, it's a, it's a, the overhang of the government and the overhang of reimbursement schedules and the overhang of the regulations and privacy and all these kinds of things that are important but have built up over the years, makes it very difficult. So I view as, I view healthcare as the poster child for an industry where deep embedded government involvement has made it more difficult. And that ultimately the catalyst that will change it will come from outside the industry to disrupt the whole architecture, so to speak, and create some new innovations that might use technology uh, to, to improve, qual improve quality, reduce cost, and make it a better experience for consumers over time. Ever the optimist, ha uh, Howard. Um, you're even optimistic about the future of American healthcare. I think you're the only person left in the Republic who is optimistic. Is there anything you're not optimistic about? Is there anything you worry about? The future of America? Look, we have to solve inequality. We have to make it uh, a broader, more inclusive environment. With the innovators that are coming up these days, most of them are coming at the expense of smaller businesses. And I worry for the small business economy, although um, they do in some ways create platforms for individuals to uh, start their own companies. Um, and climate is certainly a problem, uh, but uh, I, I feel that the the creative destruction that we have here and the, and the amount of venture capital out there uh, and ready to support entrepreneurs will allow us to solve a lot of problems. It's going to be messy. Inequality is a problem. No question about it. The climate has to be addressed. Healthcare has to be addressed. But I do believe um, that if we continue to uh, innovate and people are empowered to innovate, we'll be able to solve a lot. Not everything might be messy, but better than uh, a, an overarching government uh, framework that might suppress some of those innovations. 
All right, it's nice to have a bit of optimism on the show. Most people are very miserable these days. Uh, Howard Walk is anything. His co-authored book with John Landry, Launchpad Republic, reminds us of America's entrepreneurial edge, why it matters and why it defines American history. Congratulations, Howard, on that. Uh, what else have, have you been reading recently? Anything that, um, uh, that you particularly would advise other people to read? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm just early stages of uh, Roger Lowenstein's book, uh, Ways and Means, uh, about uh, Lincoln and his cabinet and the Civil War. I like that because I like these history books that start to show you kind of how the undergirdings of what we have today were started. And uh, he does a great job in all his books, you know, articulating these uh, somewhat complex concepts and putting them down so you can really understand how the roots were there. So that's that's the book I'm reading now. Um, one of the books that I read while I was working on this book was T.J. Stiles' book on uh, the first um, uh, the first tycoon, Cornelius Vanderbilt. I love that story because he really shows not just the growth of, of, of Vanderbilt as a great entrepreneur, but how that was so interwoven with the growth uh, of the country in the 19th century. So that's a second book that, I, that I'd recommend to anybody. And the last book I would just say is Peter Drucker's book, Innovation and Entrepreneurship. Small mm -hmm. book, 50 years old, but you read it and you, and you start to think, wow, I can see how entrepreneurs can always find opportunities, even in the- Although uh, Drucker, of course, was not an American, only came yeah. to America. That's true. Well, the Austrians, you know, this, you gotta, you, you, Austrians need a shout out every once in a while.